Only you could do that. Only you could exalt yourself and draw glory to yourself because you're sinless. You're perfect. We can't do that, Lord. Anytime we try to glorify ourselves, it just ends badly. But you can, God, and you deserve that. And so, Lord, we sing with a thousand hallelujahs of who you are. And I pray even today as we just peek at your glory and reasons why and how we should glorify you in this life, in this fallen world with all of its troubles, that you would encourage our souls to pursue your glory, not our own. Strengthen us for this, Lord. This is not easy. Lord, you know we are but dust. We're fleshly at times. So we need your help. Cause us to surrender our lives again and again to your word, to your spirit, to your truth. And may God direct us. Thank you for those who teach the same truths overseas. We're so grateful for our missionaries here and abroad, Lord. Give them favor, protect them, give them unity in their fellowships, their community of believers, Lord. Thank you for a chance Wednesday just to pray as a church for all of our missionaries. We know you hear those prayers. And we pray, Lord, you answer them in your great perfection. Lord, thank you for those um, who are all here today. It's so great to meet some new people, um, some people who have been around for many, many years, and everyone in between. Lord, we're so grateful for each and one of them. But Lord, we do have some dear, uh, loved uh, members who can't be here. So Lord, we, we ask you, Lord, to be kind and show your mercy to them as they recover, as they go through some of them very difficult situations, God. May we be mindful of them. May we pray for them. May we hurt with them and weep with them and rejoice with them. Lord, now hear that your word taught. May it be, bring glory to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I picked the title, The Pursuit of Glory. It's a kind of a play on words because I think that's what this text is about. Pursuit of glory. The question is, will we pursue our own glory or will we pursue the glory of God? Or, let's go a little, think, let's think a little deeper, do sometimes we pursue the glory of God and other times we pursue our own glory? Hmm, that might be the case with us, isn't it? The pursuit of glory. Well, many doctrinal statements down through the church age have been written, and most of them, some of the greater ones that we hold to, shorter catechisms and so forth that we really believe, always start with this phrase, man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. You've heard that, haven't you? Let me say it again. Man's chief end, the result, the goal, is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. What a statement. What a statement. And that is the goal of Christianity, isn't it? It's the goal of the Christian life. We are here for one primary reason, and that is to glorify God. And let that just sink in for a moment. That's our goal. We're here for one primary reason, saved for one primary reason, to glorify God. And of course, that's a great statement, right? Glorify in marriage and parenting and jobs and giving and all of that stuff all comes in that, right? But that's the mark of a Christian. And we got to let that sink in a little bit. The chief reason God saved me is to glorify Him and immensely enjoy Him. Are you glorifying him? Do you enjoy him? Do you find great pleasure in who he is? Some people just see him as some impersonal God that seems to always be mad at me. What a demonic view of God. So wrong. God is full of love and graciousness beyond what we can understand and Yet, we often seek our own glory that blinds it. I was reading Thomas Watson's work called Body of Divinity. I, for years, pulled that down and read through it. And I was reading it this week. 
And this is what he said about the glory of God. He starts out fairly close to the beginning this way. And he says, The great truth is asserted that the end of every man living should be to glorify God. Glorifying God has respects to all persons in the Trinity. It respects God the Father who gave us life, God the Son who lost his life for us, God the Holy Ghost who produces a new life in us so that we might bring glory to the whole Trinity. He goes on to say the glory that God has in himself is intrinsic glory. Think about that. Glory is essential to the Godhead. Just as light is to the sun, thus he is called what? The God of glory. Glory is the sparkling of his deity. I like that phrase. Glory is the sparkling of his glory. The Israelites saw it, saw it in the shot of kind of glory, didn't they? It is the co-nature to the Godhead that God cannot be God without his glory. The creature's honor is not essential to his being. Ouch. <laughs> your glory is not essential to your being, but it is essential to God. Watson goes on to write, but God's glory is an essential part of his being, and he cannot be God without it. God's very life lies in his glory, and his glory can receive no addition because it's an infinite. Does it become more glorified, right? He's not gaining in something is what Watson's trying to say here. It is that which God holds most tender. It is which, it is which he will not part with. And then one more statement just a little farther down in that opening set of paragraphs. He said this, This glory is ascribed to God in which his creatures labor to bring to him. The glory we give to God is nothing less than lifting up his name, his glory. Every time you heard the word name, it refers to his character and his glory, his name in the world, and magnifying him in the eyes of others. Man, I thought about that deeply. I thought, oh Lord, do what we do, does it magnify God, magnify his glory in the eyes of others? Well, certainly this is what the statement says. We are to have one primary reason, and that's to glorify God. That's a theme throughout Scripture. We see that even in this passage. Look at verse 31. I think this is the central text. I think this is the, the highlight verse that, that helps us understand the rest of these verses that we'll exegete as we go through here. Verse 31 says, whether you eat or drink or whatever, we'll talk about that word later, you do, do all to the glory of God of God. So here we have the meaning of the Christian life right there in a verse, black and white, verse 31, for us to study. The Bible can't make it any more clear, right? Whether you eat or you drink or whatever you do, do all, there's one of those alls, right? To the glory of God. But sometimes we lose our focus on what it means to bring glory to God. And sometimes we can lose this focus through general statements. We'll say, well, you should read your Bible. You should go to church. You should be discipled. Go back there and sign up. Go back there and sign up. However, <laughs> sometimes as humans, we, we seem to have an inclination that draws us to some list in order to think we're bringing God to glory and it's not of our heart. Do we read our Bibles because we are enthralled with who God is because we want to know him more? Do we, do we seek further discipleship because we know that God's goal for our life is to transform us into the image of his son? See, see that's different than just a list, isn't it? Well, why do you read your Bible? Because God keeps talking about it. <laughs> why are you in disciple? Because they won't give up out that in that pulpit until I go sign up. No, that's not the right reason. Please go sign up. <laughs> we know that glorifies God. But it's more, right? There's, there's an engaging of our hearts with the glory of God, right? That's just the change here. But, but then I want to think. I want to think a little bit. And I want to do a little Old Testament work here tonight and, or this morning. And, and it's a little New Testament work. All of my introduction. And please, you're going to have to bear with me. I'll give you a little longer list on introduction and your notes because 
we don't always understand how God will bring glory to himself, and he does it different than we think some days. But remember, he is always exalting and protecting his glory. That's what he does. Run with me to Exodus chapter 9. I hope you have your Bibles and your fingers ready to go because we're going to plow through some scriptures here to uh, identify this truth in our hearts. God brings glory to himself in extraordinary ways. Ways that rub um, some Christians even wrong. They have a hard time getting away, getting around the fact why and how God will do and what lengths he'll go to to preserve his glory in the eyes of people even. Exodus chapter 9, verse 13. We're on scene now in Egypt and Moses is the representative of God. He is the intercessory and he's now gone before, Herod, for, excuse me, before Pharaoh and he's challenging Pharaoh to let God's people go. We'll pick it up in verse 13. Then the Lord said to Moses, rise up early in the morning and stand before Pharaoh and say to him, thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, let my people go that they may serve me. For this time I will send all my plagues on you and your servants and your people so that you, now here's what we're after, so that you may know that there is no one like me. This is unshared glory. God judges Egypt because he will not share his glory with another. And notice you can see that. So that, that's going to tell us the reason why, that you may know that there is no one like me. I do not share my glory in all of this earth with anyone else. Verse 15. For if by now I had put my hand and struck you and your people with pestilence, you would then have been cut off from the earth. Wow, what a statement. Do you think God was gracious to Pharaoh? Oh my goodness, he was. He's going to suffer because his heart is hardened, and God's hardened it. He's even glorified in that. We're going to get to that. Is that right, what God does? Hang on, we're going to work our way all the way to Romans 9 here in a minute. God is glorified even in the hardening of hearts, but in that he's still gracious. Look, if I had put my hand to you, you wouldn't even exist I'd have cut you off forever. But, verse 16, indeed, for this reason, now there's a reason why I haven't done this yet. I have allowed you to remain in order to show my power, in order that my, to proclaim, now here it is, in order to proclaim what? My name, my person, my character, all who I am. I've allowed you to stay around for a little while and think you're Mr. King of Kings there, down on your little Egyptian throne, but I've only done this because I'm about to show the entire world my glory through all the earth. And then he goes, look at this. You still exalt yourself against my people and don't let them go. Bounce over to chapter 14. Isn't that an interesting time and in way God displays his glory? Look at chapter 14. Clearly Pharaoh is not interested in the glory of God. He is pursuing the nation of Israel as they have been let go. He's taken the best of his best. He has his whole military might trying to track down, trying to go and most likely even destroy or bring back some of these Israelites that have left. His heart is hardened, verse 13 of chapter 14. But Moses said to the people, do not fear. Um, they've already started complaining of the verses before Leave us alone. Uh, we'll go back and serve the Egyptians. They're just falling back on their flesh. And so Moses says to the people, do not fear. Stand by and see the salvation of the Lord. There's his glory coming, which he will accomplish for you today. For the Egyptians whom you have seen today, look at this, will never be seen again forever. Who can do that? You got some enemies? <laughs> do you think you ever walk up? Hey, after today, I'm never going to see you forever. Who are you to say that? See, but God can. Look at verse 14. For the Lord will fight for you while you keep silent. Uh-oh. Is that how you fight? <laughs> what a great thing. What a great reminder. Verse 15, then the Lord said to Moses, why are you crying out to me? I've already told you what I'm going to do is what he's saying. Tell the sons of Israel to go forward. Well, there's this water, and then there's this army. 
God had already said, look, I'm going to do something so amazing. Go forward. Verse 16, as, you li- as, as for you, lift up your staff and stretch it out over the sea and divide it. And the sons of Israel shall go through in the midst of the sea on dry land. As for me, this is what you guys get to do. But as for me, behold, I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians because they're going to do something really stupid here so that they will go in after them. Look at the next phrase. And I will be honored. I will be glorified through Pharaoh and all of his armies, through his chariots and his horsemen. God brings glory through the most unique circumstances we've ever seen. He has the ability to do that. Through horses, through soldiers, through this king of Egypt, he's going to bring glory. Verse 18, then the Egyptians will know. That's what he wants Remember, there's going to come a time, the Bible says, wherever knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he is Lord. And right now he says, look, the Egyptians will know that I'm Lord. And when I'm honored through Pharaoh, through his chariots, through his horsemen, that's when this will take place. And so let me say this, judgment glorifies God. And that means the judgment of all at the end of time that actually brings tremendous glory to God. Fast forward to chapter 32. Well, those were Israel's enemies. What about Israel? How is God going to present glory to himself through Israel? Well, that should have been an obvious answer, but look at chapter 32 and just drop down to verse 10. Context, they've built a golden calf. They are worshiping it. They're in immoral play now. Uh, They have entered into complete paganism led by leaders outside of Moses. Things are bad. And the Lord says to Moses, I have seen this people and behold, they are an obstinate people. Now then, let me alone. Here's a big test coming for Moses. Here's a big test coming for the intercessor, the type that, that really resembles, in a way, a forward thinking of the Lord Jesus Christ. Let me alone that my anger may burn against them, that I may destroy them, and I will make you a great nation. Whew. What's Moses going to do with this? Remember, he's a type. Hey, God hates sin. And I'll guarantee you that His anger burned against our sin before we were saved, right? We know that that's God. That's a characteristic of God. Though he knew us from the foundations of the world was going to draw us to us, he hated our sin. It it caused him to mourn. He burned against it. But someone stepped in the way, didn't they? His name's Jesus. And look what Moses does. Moses entreated the Lord is God and said, Oh Lord, why does your anger burn against your people whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and with mighty hand? You showed your glory when you brought them out. Verse 12, why should the Egyptians speak saying with evil intent he brought them out to kill them in the mountains and destroy them from the face of the earth? Question mark. Turn your burning anger and change your mind about doing harm to your people. And here we begin to realize what Moses' job, he's an intercessor, and he's showing us that God is glorified even in his judgment. And he's not only glorified in his judgment of the nation of Israel, because we know a lot of people die after this. Uh, I think somewhere around 3,000 are slain for this awful behavior. But God is concerned, and Moses knows it, about the glory of himself to not only to his own people, but to the people of the world. And so Moses says, they're going to think you rescued them only to kill them. And Moses said, I don't want them to know you as that. I want him to know you as the God. And, and so Moses is obsessed with God's glory. He's being tested here whether he would stand in that gap between God and man as a type. And here he does that so well. Fast forward to the book of Numbers. I was looking at my calendar. I, I think August 31st I'm going to start teaching on Numbers in the, in the Wednesday night service. But until we get there, let's take a peek at Numbers chapter 14. They rebelled against Moses and Aaron again. They use awful terms. You're a terrible leader. 
why didn't you just leave us in the land? At least we had some food there. We're going to stone him in verse 10. Let's just kill him. We'll just kill the Lord's anointed. <laughs> Sound familiar? <laughs> Remember, he's a type. The Lord said to Moses, how long will this people spurn me? Verse 11, how long will they not believe in me despite all the signs which I've formed in their midst? Verse 12, I will smite them with pestilence and, dis, uh, and, uh, and dispose of them, and I will make you into a nation greater and mightier than they. But Moses said, here he comes again, then the Egyptians will hear of it, for by your strength you brought them from, uh, up out of this people from their midst, and they will tell it to the inhabitants of the land that they heard that you, O Lord, are in the midst of his people, for you, O Lord, are, are seen eye to eye while your cloud stands over them, and you go before them in the pillar of a cloud by day and the pillar by fire by night. Now, if you slay this people as one man, then the nations have heard of your fame, will say, look, they've already heard of his fame, right? And they, and they do, they, they, they get scared when God is evidently among his people. You can see that as we go on in the book of Numbers and other places. But verse 16, because the Lord could not bring his people into the land which he promised them by oath. He promised them a land. And if he doesn't deliver that land, then he's a liar. So Moses knows that God is full of truth. He is the standard of truth. And so he pleads on that truth. Therefore, he slaughtered them in the wilderness. That's what they're going to say. But now, Moses says in verse 17, I pray, let the power, the glory of the Lord be great, just as you have declared. The Lord is slow to anger, abundant in loving kindness, forgiving iniquities and transgressions, but he will by no means clear the guilty, visiting iniquity on the fathers of the children of the third and fourth generations. Here he's quoting exactly what God said to him in Exodus 34, 6, as he was in the cleft of the rock. God is glorified even in his threats as he tests Moses that he may wipe out his own people. You go forward and you pick up things like this in Jeremiah. Just let me quote you a verse. Jeremiah is one of the last prophets before the last group is swept off to Babylon. And Jeremiah says this, 14.7, although our iniquities testify against us. And Jeremiah usually puts himself in with the nation of Israel. Oh Lord, now listen to this, act for your name's sake. Truly our apostasies have been many. We have sinned against you. So Jeremiah says, act God for your glory, not for the nation. Jump a little farther forward and go to Ezekiel chapter 36. What an amazing text this is. Drop into the passage of 36 at verse 17. Verse 16, Ezekiel says, Then the word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, when the house of Israel was living in their own land, they defiled it by their ways and their deeds. Their way before me was like the uncleanness of a woman in her impurity. Therefore I poured out my wrath on them for the blood which they had shed on the land, because they had defiled it with the idols. Also I scattered them among the nations, and they were dispersed. This is referring to the great dispersal of the nation of Israel throughout the lands. According to their ways and their deeds, I judged them. And when they came into the nations where they went, they still, look at this, they profaned my holy name, my holy character, my glory is what God is saying because it was said of them, these are the people of the Lord, yet they have come out of his land. But I, verse 21, look at this. But I had concern for their glory. Whose nose is in their Bible? Was that correct? I should have heard someone say, no, Pastor Scott. Thank you. Okay, we're coming along here. But I had concern for my holy name. Isn't that amazing? I dispersed them because of their disobedience. I sent them off out of the Lamb. Because I had concern for my holy name, they had blasphemed my character, my glory, which the house of Israel had profaned among the nations wherever they went. So God, listen, 
God is glorified in judgment. Now look at this. God is glorified in restoration. Look at verse 22. Therefore says the house of Israel. They say, thus says the Lord God. It is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I'm about to act. Here he goes again. I'm about to do something, not for your glory, but for my own, because I can do that, but for my holy name. There it is again. Anytime you see that name, character, glory of God, which you have profaned among the nations where you went. So he's, gonna, he's setting up this whole restoration. It's going to be done for his glory. So you could say God restores for his glory. If you've ever been restored, if you've ever fallen, if you've, if you've ever committed sin and you repented of that and you know God forgave you and, you and you know his restoration on your life, yes, you benefited greatly and how wonderful that is to be right with God and right fellowship again in such a way. But he is glorified through restoration. And we're working hard on that around here. Look at verse 25. I will vindicate my holiness by my great name which has been profaned among the nations, which you profaned in the midst, then the nations will know that I am Lord, declares the Lord God, when I prove myself holy among you in their sight. So how's he going to do that? Verse 24, for I will take you from the nations, gather you from all the lands and bring you into your own land. Then I will sprinkle you clean, uh, sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. And I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. Let's just stop right there. When someone turns from idolatry, when someone turns from rebellion in God, he is magnified. You want to glorify God? Say, search me and know me and see if there's any wicked way within me. Reprove me, God. Wash me with water. Make me white as snow. Go back to that beautiful teaching. Look at verse 26. Moreover, I will give you a new heart. Now, we know this hasn't happened to Israel yet. We know this is a remnant that's coming someday. Um, They've never bowed the knee to the lordship of Jesus yet, but there will be a remnant that will. But notice he will have a new heart, and he'll put a new spirit within them. Oh, don't we love this phrase? Remove the heart of stone. A stone heart can't love. It's cold. It blames God for things instead of repenting over things, right? Right? I think this is directly attached to Zechariah. They'll look on the one whom they pierce. They can't do that. They reject Jesus to this day. And I think this is not just Israel. This is everyone else who rejects Jesus because their heart's still a stone. And we need the supernatural work of God to take the heart of stone out of our loved ones, our neighbors, people that we want to come to Christ. We need them to remove that heart of stone and give them a heart of flesh so they can love Jesus. This is what he's going to do for them because he glorifies himself in this. And I'll remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh and I will put my spirit, oh my goodness, the marking, the declaring of somebody's salvation is that we have the spirit of God within us and cause you, look at this, cause you, he's glorified by causing you and me to walk in his statues, not our own. That's what got them into trouble. They walked in their own ways not God's ways. And you will be careful to observe my ordinances and you will live in the land that I gave you to your forefathers so that you will be my people and I will be your God. God is greatly glorified in restoration. He's, he, he's, he's glorified in judgment. He's glorified in discipline. He's glorified in restoration. But what about the New Testament? Just listen with me quickly here. Or make your way to Romans 9 and listen to these verses as I go there. Matthew chapter 10, verse 22. You will be hated, now listen to this, by all because of my name. You know, we've been skating along here pretty good in America. Nobody giving us flack. Not too much. Not too many Christians in prison here in America for our faith. Very few deaths. Every once in a while somebody... Maybe he's murdered for their faith in Christ, but it's common occurrence with our brothers and sisters around the world. But Jesus is promising here, Matthew chapter 10, verse 22, you will, you will be hated by all because of my name. He's telling his disciples that. Thus, us too can take that as a warning or an understanding as well because of my glory. But it is the one who has endured to the end who will be saved. And that means the ones who are truly saved, they endure. 
They're not saved because they endure. They endure because they're saved. You get that? You got to get that down, otherwise this works. We don't endure to be saved. That's works. We endure because we're saved. That's grace. See the difference? But notice, we do this, we're hated, and we endure because God's glory is worth it. Acts chapter 9, I love this. Um, Paul gets saved, and um, he's brought to Ananias, and Ananias is scared of him. He says, look, go, for he is a chosen servant of mine to bear my name, show my glory, display my glory to both Gentiles and kings and to the sons of Israel. Verse 10, I'll show him how much he must suffer for my glory. Sometimes we suffer for God's glory. God does things different, doesn't he? Look at Romans 9 with me. So much in this passage, but I want to focus on the glory of God. Please catch that as I go through this. Romans chapter 9, verse 13. Buckle up. Just as written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Whew. You know, God uses the term hate several times throughout the scriptures. And of course, this is the quote out of the Old Testament, out of the book of Genesis. It reminds us that God both loves and God both hates. But verse 14, the natural response. So Paul's going to head off this fleshly natural response. What shall we then say? Is there injustice or no injustice with God? Is there? May it never be. That's not part of his character. He's a just God, so he can't be unjust. He can't have both and be God. So he, we know that, and that's what Paul's referring to. It may genito, may it never be, that's impossible. That can't, that's, that's opposite of his character. Verse 15, for he says to Moses, Exodus chapter 33, verse 19, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I'll have compassion on whom I have compassion. He's a perfect God. He makes perfect choices. We just follow him. And we're in awe that he even gave us mercy because we did not deserve that, did we? And brother, sister, if you're here, or friend, if you're here and you think, well, I don't think that's fair. You missed the whole argument. We deserve death, eternal death. So you want to talk about fair, you know this, right? We all get what? Death. That's fair. Wages of sin is death. So God does what he does in his perfect omniscience. Every time, he never fails in that. And whether that's compassion or mercy, whether he holds that, whatever he does, he does perfectly. Look at verse 16. Now, this is all bringing him glory. So then, it does not depend on the, man's, uh, on ma- on the man who wills. Uh-oh. I know that's a hard one for some. You, you, you want to lay down on that whole free will thing. Don't forget your, your will is corrupted by sin and ain't very free. So it doesn't depend on man's will or the man who runs so you can do all the good works you want. You're going to come up short. Jesus said, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees, you will not inherit the kingdom of God. Those guys had a pretty perfect track record, didn't they? They're straining gnats, <laughs> right? I mean, they're, they're going into degree to show that they're righteous and they get the kingdom. And of course, we know what God said, that they're going to die in their sins. But it depends on God who has mercy. You know, he has great glory as he shares his mercy. Verse 17, he brings in that Exodus 9 passage here. Scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very reason I raised you up to demonstrate my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed throughout the whole earth. This is, this is what he, he told Moses. This is what he told Pharaoh. This is how he brings glory even through judgment, even through salvation. He brings glory to himself. Verse 18, So, that, so then he has mercy on whom he desires and he hardens whom he desires. And you go, that's not fair. Read the next verse. You will say to, to me then, why does he still find fault? Who resists him? On the contrary, verse 20, who are you? <laughs> I love it. Well, I'm, I'm a sinner dead in my sins, <laughs> deserving of all hell's wrath. Yeah, you got it right. Here's how he says it. Oh, man, who are you to answer God back? Does the thing mold it? Will not say to the molder, why did you make me this way? You're the pot. He's the potter, and you're going, I don't like this pot. 
I don't like what you've done. It's so funny. He uses something that's so absurd, an inanimate object talking back to its potter, to its, to its owner, to try to drive home a point. Listen, Clayplot, you got nothing to say here. I'm the designer. I'm the one who says how I use you because I will use you for my glory one way or another. Notice what he does. This is astounding. Verse 21, or does not the potter have the right over the clay to make the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for common use? What if, and this isn't by chance, this doesn't mean like, well, maybe this could happen. This actually happens. Although willing to demonstrate his wrath, Look at this. To make known his power, his glory. What if? What if? He, he wants to make known his glory in unique ways. Are you going to accept this? Enduring with much patience, uh-oh, wrestle, vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. Ask yourself this question. On judgment day, when he separates the sheep and the goats, will God only be glorified by the sheep? Ooh. Is he not glorified in perfect execution of judgment? Ooh. I know that's hard, right? Because we're human and we think, well, that's not fair. And what about this person? Our minds are running all over the place. And we go, whoa, 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 whoa. God's perfect in all that he does. He executes judgment for his own glory and he does it in his perfection. He makes no mistakes. He says, Scott, how would that day be? Uh, well, I haven't seen that day yet, but here's what I can promise you from the scriptures is that you and I will be in a new mind. We'll be like Christ when we see him. We'll be like him. We will not doubt the character of God. We won't question uh, the sinful will of man and the perfect will of God. Those things will be gone. We'll see God as how he is. We'll magnify and glorify him and exalt him in a unique way like we've never done before. And I have a feeling and I have a belief as I study this, we will praise God for both his rewards and his judgment. And that's hard to get your mind around at times in this fleshly earth, but that's what this text is saying. He brings glory to himself uniquely. Look at verse 23, because there's another part of his glory here. And he did so to make known the riches of his glory upon vessels of mercy. If nobody is judged for eternity, how glorious is that this door, just everybody comes, oh, yeah, you're all going to get here. Or, or annihilationism in a lot of Christians because they just can't get their mind around God's going to judge people from eternity and he gets glory for that. They just can't get them. Well, let's just wipe them out and gone. They're just out of thought and mind. Now look what he says. He did so to make known the riches of the glory upon the vessels of mercy. Brothers and sisters, when you really think about the doctrine of salvation, you will worship when you get your mind to the point where you go, oh God, you gave me what I did not deserve. You are an amazing God to save me and bring me into your eternal kingdom forever. I didn't deserve it. I deserve your damnation. I deserve your judgment. And yet you've been so kind to me. That's why we sing the way we sing and why we preach the way we preach. Because we're overwhelmed that he would save a wretch like me. Isn't that beautiful? And notice he did this all beforehand. For glory. Even us. I love that little phrase, us. It's, we drop that even to help us understand it. Even us, whom he called, not, not from just among the Jews, right? His, his original people that he set aside, but also from the Gentiles. He's after the entire world. That's Matthew 28, the Great Commission. He's going to all the world and preach a gospel. I'm going to gather people from every walk, tribe, tongue, nation. I'm going to bring them all for my glory. He brings glory to himself so differently than we think. And I'm overwhelmed with it at times. Romans chapter 15, he says we need to be one voice, one voice together glorifying God. You want to glorify God? Bring one voice. One voice 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 20, he says, glorify God with your body. That's what he wants. Remember, we're talking about everything. Ephesians chapter 1, he goes through that great passage of salvation. 
um, starting in verse 3 down through verse 14. And over and over he says, for the praise of his glory, for the praise of his glory, for the praise of his glory. He wrote to Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 1, all who are under the yoke, of, yoke as slaves are to regard their own master as worthy of all honor. All right, we may not have slaves. You may think you're kind of a slave. Um, but whatever you see yourself as, slave, employee, whatever it is, he says, do this so the name of God and our doctrine will not be spoken against. See, the New Testament's full of glorifying God in the unique situation God has set you in. And oh boy, you could walk through this room, right? And how many phenomenally different situations are we all in in here? We're everything from soon to be with the Lord in heaven to newborns in this, in this body here. We're racially diverse, ethnically diverse. We have all kinds of different people. And every one of us have unique ways that God wants us to bring glory and honor to him. Go to Titus chapter 2. You can see where my mind went this week. I just got consumed with his glory. Titus chapter 2. Verse 1, you old men. <laughs> you know, you'll, you'll know who I'm talking to. <laughs> you older guys, you mature in the faith. Be temperate, dignity, sensible. Hang on to sound doctrine. You see it all in verses 1 and 2. Why? That brings glory to God. We'll see. You older women, be reverent in your behavior, not malice gossips. Not enslaved to much wine. Teach what's good. So that... You may encourage the younger women to love their husbands, love their children, be sensible, pure, workers at home, kind, being subject to their own husbands. Now look at this last phrase, so that the word of God will not be dishonored. And if you dishonor the word of God, you dishonor God. Don't glorify God's word. Don't exalt this as truth, and you will not glorify God. And that's what people are doing today, right? Let's move this around. We don't like this younger, older women. We don't even like the word women. We can't define it. Um, we don't like marriage. We don't like anything God says about the family. So, but hey, we're Christians and we believe in Jesus. You're not bringing any glory to God. You're bringing all glory to your own now. You said God's system is wrong. I know better, right? It goes on, younger men. Got to get everybody in this, right? Younger men, be sensible. We've got older men, older women, young women now, younger men. Be sensible in all things. Show yourself to be an example of good deeds, with purity and doctrine, dignity, sound speech, which is beyond, beyond approach, so that the opponent will be put to shame, having nothing to say about you. And if they say bad things about you, they say bad things about God, there's a whole intrinsic understanding of the glory of God, the way a young man lives his life. Nine, urge bond servants to be subject to their own masters and everything to be well-pleasing, not argument, not pilfering, but showing all good faith so that they will adorn the doctrine of God our Savior in every respect. I mean, how many people groups did we just take in in this? Old and young people and slaves and employees, right? Masters would be, we could tie them in very easy. There's other texts, I don't have time to go there. Believe me, I looked at it already this week. Everybody falls under this this understanding that we bring glory to God. Those who will, will reject Jesus Christ and go to hell, they're going to bring glory to God by his judgment upon them. Those of us, by God's grace and mercy, who, who have become his elect from the foreknowledge for the foreknowledge and, the, and, and before time began, we bring glory to him that he saved us, first of all, not by works of our own righteousness, but by his faithful work through his son on the cross, but by our lives. Is your life glorifying to God? Oh, there's so many texts. Peter tells us to keep our, our, our behavior excellent among the Gentiles. So the things that we slander uh, you for an evildoer, they may see your good deeds and glorify God in the day of visitation. And when you look at that phrase, it's the good deeds that glorify God. A little later, chapter 4, he said, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fire of your deal among you which comes upon you for your testing. Remember, we talked about that. As though some strange thing has happened to you, but to the degree you share in the sufferings of Christ, keep rejoicing so that also at the revelation of his glory, you may rejoice in exhortation, in exaltation. 
I think sometimes we try to go, remember we said this a couple weeks ago, we try to go around the trial instead of God, trusting God and going through the trial. When you go through the trial, he will be greatly exalted when he appears. If you're reviled for the name of Christ, for the glory of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. Wouldn't it be nice to know by our spirit that we glorify God? Man, yeah, that, that gal over there, she just has a spirit about her that exalts God. That guy over there, he, he's not perfect, but, but there's a spirit about him that just constantly wants God glorified. When he sins, he has short accounts. He gets right with God right away. He has the spirit of God's glory on him. See, this is what God's pushing us. But if anyone suffers as a Christian, not, not a thief or an evildoer, a meddler, the Bible says, troublesome meddler, but suffers as a Christian, he is not to be ashamed, but is to glorify God. See, that's what we do. You say, okay, okay, Scott. We get it. The chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Get it, Scott? You've pounded it. Have I? Okay, good. That was my point. We understand, and you're saying to me, we understand God desires to be glorified through the save and the unsaved. He, he's glorified in judgment and discipline and restoration, right? We comprehend that God's word is leading us to glorify him through suffering and good times and bad. We, we get that. But what does that have to do with our passage? Has anybody thought that yet? I hope not, because verse 31 ties us back into that, doesn't it? Now, remember last week we ended with verse 22. Go back to 1 Corinthians 10. My Bible just falls open to it. <laughs> verse 22, remember that? Or do, you, or do we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Or are we stronger than he is? So, so we're, we're going to go into this. I'm going to answer these and fairly quickly. You're going to have to hang on because we're going to go through these points very quickly because we're going to see how we glorify God in these unique, difficult situations with Christians and weak Christians and un, uh, unsaved people and all of that. That's what Paul's going to do because we have this righteous, jealous God who does not want us to abuse his grace, does not want us to abuse our freedoms in order to sin, and he desires that his glory, um, that his, his glory, which is revealed in his son completely, that's where we see his full glory, be our motivation for living godly lives. Now, Paul's going to give us these five challenges how to do that. And then he's going to challenge us to be imitators of Christ. Number one, we glorify God when we seek to edify, now listen to this, and deny self-glorification. Look at verse 23 and 24. All things are lawful, but not all things are profitable. All things are lawful, but not all things edify. Let no one seek his own good, but that of his neighbor. So here are these two verses, in a sense, I really, as I looked at this, oh, you're just summing up your, your whole context from chapter 8 all the way to chapter 11. This sums that up. This is what he's after. In this little phrase, look at this little phrase, he uses it twice, all things are lawful. Most likely that's a phrase they have written back to him. They don't like what he's teaching. Um, they like their freedoms. They're not concerned with the gospel. They're not concerned with the weaker brother. And so they go, look, all things are lawful. Right? And so Paul's going to take this on. And you can see in these verses that they are mo far more concerned with their freedom than the gospel and the spiritual health of a younger brother. But Paul's referring back to this unquestionable practices that they have been doing the Christians have been doing in Corinth that are, are maybe not necessarily in and of themselves sinful, but they become sinful as they abuse God's grace. And so uh, maybe they have family members that are caught in some of their cultic worship and they attend some family feasts that mom and dad want them to come to or something like that. But then they, they get farther into it and they try to worship both God and these problems and he's calling these things out. You can't call this unlawful. So their, their actions they may be somewhat lawful, but they're not beneficial. Nor do they build up others in the faith. And this is what he's at. And the word of God is challenging the Corinth church. I think he's challenging us to examine our hearts post haste. Whether Now think about this. Whether our actions are actually beneficial, whether they're actually building somebody up, that's the key here. That's what he's after. This word edification or edify is an interesting word. It comes from uh, a Greek, two Greek words that are compound word, and 
oikos is the word we get for house, right? And then the, the, the final word, domeo, domeo um, is this word of, of putting something together. So it has this idea literally of building a house. So, so I think here's what Paul's doing. Are we building up the house of faith? Or are we tearing it down? And again, there's some figurative language here. It's metaphorically in some way, but he's talking about spiritual growth. Everything, think about this, everything I do, everything that you do as a Christian is in the end to build up. That's what he's telling us. That we grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ, as Peter said in 2 Peter chapter 3, 18, for our own growth, but not only just for our own growth, but for the growth of others. So he says, but not all things are profitable. You're either building up or you're tearing down. He's making it pretty clear. You're doing one or the other here. And so there's no impartial statement. There's no neutral statement in this. They're either positive and they're reflecting. We are either positive and reflecting the glory of God and we edify and build up. Or negative, we are detracting from the glory of God in some human way by tearing others down. And this is tough, brothers and sisters, because it takes self-examination. When I'm done with someone, do they walk away and feel edified to glorify God or do they feel more empowered in self or do they feel turned down? What is it, what is it like coming away from being with you? I know this is tough. Can we ask your spouse that question? Can we ask your children that question? Can we ask the church member that question? See, What's the goal here? This is what he's after. He taught this all the way through his life. Acts chapter 20, verse 32, he commends the elders in Ephesus that they're able to build you up. He commends them to the word of God, to the word of grace, to build one another up. He starts this whole contest, context out in chapter 8, verse 1, and he says that knowledge makes arrogant, but love edifies. He tells them in Ephesians chapter 4, 11 through 13, to submit to the apostles and prophets and evangelists and, and pastors and teachers for their equipping the saints for the work of the service to build up the body of Christ. In 1 Corinthians 14, 26, he's dealing with all kinds of things. Everybody wants to speak in tongues and have a word from God, have all this stuff, and he says, let everything you do edify. You're robbing God. We'll get to that in a few, I don't know how long until I get to 14. Ephesians chapter 4, he says, Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, only such a word that is good for edification. This is how he talks. He ends 1 Thessalonians by saying this, Therefore, encourage one another, build one another up, just as you are doing. This is his theme. So in the context, we should ask ourselves these questions. Think about this. Do I have the right to exercise my freedom in this particular area? If yes, will it build me up and will it build up the people around me? You have to ask yourself that, okay? Well, yeah, I have a right. I have a right to do A and B and C. I have that right. I'm free in Christ. Okay, good. You've answered that first question. Now, if yes, does it build you up to love Jesus, glorify God more, and build up those around you? Now, if that answer is yes to both of those, go do it. If you can biblically prove that, and this is what Paul's after, if it's yes and it's there to, to help you grow in the love of the glory of God and the love of Jesus Christ and, and edify those around you, knock yourself out. But if the answer is one to either one or both of those questions, don't do it. That's what he's doing. It's pretty simple, isn't it? If it doesn't glorify God, If it doesn't help edify, don't do it. Look at verse 24. Let no one seek his own good, but that of his neighbor. See, this verse is qualifying whether and how we answered verse 23, right? Meaning my spiritual freedom may allow me to say yes, but if it's not going to build up my neighbor for the glory of God, and he or she may be a weaker brother or sister, and it will certainly offend them, I choose to forego my freedom because it most glorifies God and it's best for the spiritual development of my neighbor. And when it comes to choosing between what builds me up and what builds up my neighbor, I think what Paul's saying, I choose to build him or her up, this glorifies God. The word neighbor is an interesting word there. It is hereteros, and it is a word that is widely used from uh, your spouse to uh, a stranger. And you go, well, yeah, I'm doing pretty good with my neighbor. 
uh, wait a minute. <laughs> it's a little closer than that, and it's a little farther. And so we, we think about how our life affects others. One of the most quoted Old Testament passages of the New Testament is this phrase, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Well, brothers and sisters, we are really good at loving ourselves, aren't we? The Bible says, do nothing out of selfish ambition. Two, we glorify God through our freedoms and not our legalism. Look at verses 25 through 26. Eat anything that is sold in the meat market without asking questions for conscience sake. For the earth is the Lord's and all it contains. If one, of a, if one of the unbelievers invites you and you want to go, eat anything that is set before you without asking questions for conscience sake. Well, I love the balance of Scripture here, isn't it? This is really cool, Right? See, you see, there's a balance here, but, but legalism is so easily come to because it often is motivated by self-pride and it's masked in this false spirituality. So Paul's stripping this all away. Legalism's just right there, right? I mean, we, we hear this stuff all the time. You, you, if you look hard enough, you're always going to find somebody who's against something pretty soon. You can't do anything. And I love what Paul does here. And we can be so afraid that we're going to offend somebody that we end up doing nothing, and the result is not glorifying God. I think this is extremely relevant for today. Someone may say to you, you can't shop there because they do this, and, and then you can't shop here because they do that, and, and, and you can't certainly attend that because they do this. <laughs> can you imagine the first century, what they were living in? Everything in the marketplace was offered somewhere. But look what he does in verse 25. Eat anything. It ain't it all, right? It's sold in the meat market without asking questions. See, he's, he, Paul's asserting freedom over legalism here. If you go to the marketplace, and I love, love that term, uh, uh, Meklan is the word. I, I, we recently went in North Africa. There's just meat out there hanging, flies all over the place. It's great. Um, and you see this delicious camel steak, and you say to yourself, I, I'd really like to eat that camel steak. So Paul's saying, don't ask questions. Just say, I'd like that camel steak and go home and grill it and eat it. Isn't that, I mean, it's pretty simple exegesis here, isn't it? And Paul's saying, don't ask questions. You know, because you might find out that some Corinthian, when that camel was a baby, dedicated to uh, one of the gods of Corinth, and, um, and then it got raised and it got sacrificed, and some of that meat ended up in there, and you, asked, you had to ask. Just don't ask. If you're going to buy a steak from a non-Christian source, keep your mouth shut. Don't ask silly questions. Go home, grill that thing, and eat it. See, remember, legalism attempts to rob God of his glory by thinking you know something better. And that's what Paul does here. He supports his claim through Scripture. Look at verse 26. Eat anything that is sold in the meat market without asking and then he says in verse 26, for the earth is the Lord and all it contains. Clearly in verse 20, Paul warned the Corinth churches not to have business participating in idolatry and idolatrous ceremonies. He's, he's really clear in verse 20 because you're sharing the doctrine of demons, right? Remember he said that. But because you did not participate in the world's idolatry, you have a clear conscience, select your meat in the market and eat it. And the reason being is that all the food is from the Lord. He's provided it from the earth. It can be eaten with a clear conscience. The camel was really good, by the way. And you can consume this with thanksgiving in your heart. And when you consume things with thanksgiving, it glorifies God. We didn't learn to pray before our meal just because that's habit. <laughs> it actually glorifies God when you say, God, I want to thank you for this bologna sandwich that you've given me. It's, it's grateful that you gave me this food. I, I'm so grateful. Thank you for giving me the strength to work and provide money so I could buy and eat this bologna sandwich. I'm very grateful for it. What if we taught our children just to stop and be grateful before our meal? Just thank him for it. Paul told Timothy, chapter 4, 4 and 5, for everything created by God is good. Nothing is to be rejected if it is received in gratitude, for it is sanctified by the means of the word and by prayer. So essentially, that's exactly what God had to tell Peter. Peter was going, oh yeah, nothing unclean has ever touched these lips. Yeah, nice try. Go eat it. Go witness to Corinth. I'm more concerned with the gospel. 
And Peter does. So Paul, again, is turning to the very Christian balanced approach. Look at verse 27. For if one of the unbelievers invites you, you want to go with him, eat anything that's set before you without asking questions for conscience sake. In essence, if an unbeliever invites you over for dinner, you should not exchange your freedoms in some way to win him. Well, I can't participate because of that because I'm a Christian. It's a camel steak. So gladly accept the invitation and eat what's put in front of you. Brothers and sisters, I, there's things I've eaten on the mission field. I, I still don't know what I ate. I know there's a missing cat somewhere. There's just things that poor missionaries and people on the field do their best to give you, and that's what they eat. So Gina and I are like, okay. It's a little slimy, but let's try to get it down. I don't know how many sips of wine I've taken living in California because we, they had us over for dinner. They go, oh, Pastor, this is our special reserve, and, and this is our family secret of this wine. You've got to try a little bit. I'm like, yeah, it still tastes like gasoline, but hey, thanks. <laughs> That's just me personally. Don't be drunk. See, they put it in front of you. Don't offend. Look, Christian freedoms and and privileges are not to be forfeited when it's clearly an offense to the other person, right? So, so we, they are to be forfeited, excuse me. When, when we know it, it is an offense, let it go. Now, we certainly limit our freedoms in order to cause, um, not cause others to stumble, right? That's the idea here. But we should also teach younger brothers and sisters the freedom they have in Christ too, Right? I think that glorifies God. And so they're not swallowed up by legalism, right? They, they'll lose their joy and their ability to glorify God. So you, you might say, hey, I'm not going to do this, but I'm going to look for an opportunity to help grow that brother or sister and not be preachy and legalistic myself. I'm, I'm going to look for an opportunity to help them realize that's probably not the hill you want to die on. See, we, we do that. So there may be, and this might be hitting some of you that are on some soapboxes right now, you need to get off that. Bring glory to God. That's how we live our lives. But at the same time, if you know you're attending something or shopping somewhere or wearing something or doing something that affects a weaker brother or sister, stop doing it. That's the balance here. But also look for opportunities to be humble and biblically grow your friend in the faith. Look, Paul said in Galatians 5.1, it is for freedom that Christ set us free. Therefore, keep standing firm and do not be subject again to the yoke of slavery. And certainly the context is the doctrine of justification there. But it is clear that legalism robs you of what justification gives you. Freedom to glorify God in many areas of our life. And so there's a battle of self. Well, I failed miserably. I got two out of five. We'll come back because I don't miss the next one because he's going to bring balance to us. There's a young Christian brother that's going to end up in this argument. And how do we deal with him? And then how do we live for Jesus for the entirety of our life on this earth? Father, we thank you for just the reminder. Lord, I just thank you for leading me to spend time on your glory. I, it's so easy to get lost in what we do here, Lord, and forget that no matter what we're engaged in, business practices, managing homes, um, raising kids, being married, uh, teaching, training, uh, servant of some way, an employer, an employer. Lord, in every way, you want us to bring glory to you. And you bring glory to yourself even when men and women stick their heels in the ground. You'll bring judgment, you'll bring discipline, and you'll bring restoration all to bring glory to yourself. And Lord, I thank you personally for that reminder today. And I pray, Lord, that it'll soak in. Now, Lord, as we turn to your table, what an opportunity to bring you glory. Lord, if any of us in this room have been fighting your glory for our own, I pray you reveal it to us. This is a problem with us, Lord. We're selfish, and by nature we... We fight to preserve ourselves. We, we seek self-gratification easily, Lord. But the table really has nothing to do with that. The table really is, is full 
pure gratification for what Jesus has done. And so, Lord, help us. May we take this together and may it remind us that we need to let go of some things today. Would you help us in that? In Jesus' name, amen.